Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, let's get into it. We have a few obituaries to get to first. Uh, this first one is from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. Estelle Harris, 1928 actually, to 2022. Seinfeld star, voice of Mrs. Potato Head, from the Associated Press. Estelle Harris, who hollered her way into TV history as George Costanza's short-fused mother on Seinfeld and voiced Mr. Pota Mrs. Potato Head in the story Toy Story franchise, has died. She was 93. As middle-class matron Estelle Costanza, Harris put a memorial stamp on a reoccurring role in the Smash 90s sitcom. With a high-pitched voice and humorously overbearing attitude, she was an archetype of maternal indignation. Trading insults and absurdities with her on-screen husband, played by Jerry Stiller, Harris helped create a parental pair that would leave even a psychiatrist helpless to do anything but hope they'd move to Florida, as the son, played by Alec Jason Alexander, fruitlessly encouraged them to do. Harris's agent, Michael Eisenstadt, confirmed the actor's death in Palm Desert on Saturday. Viewers of all backgrounds would tell would tell that she was just like their own mothers, Harris often said. She's the mother that everybody loves, even though she's a pain in the neck, she told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 1998. The career-defining role came after decades on stage and screen. Born April 22, 1928 in New York, Harris grew up in the city and later in the Pittsburgh suburb of Tarentum, Pennsylvania, where her father owned a candy store. She started taping her comedic talents in a high school productions or tapping her comedic talents in high school productions, realizing she could make the audience get hysterical, as she told People magazine in 1995. After the nine-season run of Seinfeld ended in 1998, Harris continued to appear on stage and screen. She voiced Mrs. Potato Head in the 1999 animated uh, blockbuster Toy Story 2, and played the reoccurring character Muriel in the popular Disney Channel sitcom The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, among other things. She stopped pursuing show business when she married in the early 1950s, but resumed acting in amateur groups, uh, dinner theater, and commercials as her three children grew. I had to get out of diapers and bottles and blah blah baby talk, she told people. Eventually, she began appearing in guest roles on TV shows, including the legal comedy Night Court, and in films including director Sergio Leone's 1984 gangland epic, Once Upon a Time in America. Her Seinfeld debut came in one of the show's most celebrated episodes, the Emmy Award-winning 1992 The Contest, in which the four central characters challenge one another to refrain from doing what is artificially described only as that. Harris would go on to appear in dozens more episodes of the show about nothing. She seethed over snubbed Paela, P-A-E-L-L-A, -L -L -A, screeched about George's hanky-panky in the parental bedroom, and laid out the spread for screen husband Frank's idiosyncratic holiday, Festivus. Estelle is a born performer, Stellar uh, said in, in 1998. I just go with what I got, and she goes back at me the same way. Still, Harris saw a sympathetic undertone to her character often saying Estelle fumed out of frustration at her bumbling mate and scheming slacker of a son. 
viewers, she told an interviewer in 1998, just look at her as being funny, cute, and a loudmouth. But it's not how I played her. I play her with misery underneath. She was survived by her three children, three grandsons, and a great-grandson. That was Estelle Harris, 1928 to 2022, Seinfeld star, voice of Mrs. Potato Head, from the Associated Press, out of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. All right, we go on to this one from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 6th, 2022, Marvin Chomsky, 1929 to 2022, acclaimed director of Roots Star Trek by Steve Marvel. Marvin Chomsky, a prolific Hollywood director who helped make the influential miniseries Roots and won Emmys for sobering television dramas on the Holocaust, the Attica Prisoner Uprising, and early-day Russian imperialism, has died at 92. A go-to director for years, Chomsky died March 28 in Santa Monica, his son Peter said. No cause was given. Chomsky had a long list of directing credits, from uh, some of the first Star Trek episodes to the torn-from-the-headlines drama Billionaire Boys Club, the true story of a, Los Angeles investing, of, a, of a Los Angeles investing in social club that targeted young, inexperienced men from wealthy families. But it was in directing many of the episodes of Roots, the saga of a black family from enslavement to post-Civil War life, that he sensed he was helping make a change when Hollywood was dominated by white male actors with few opportunities beyond stereotypical roles for black actors. The story was something about a wretched tear, uh, tear in the American fabric that no one was willing to face openly, he told the Times in 1982. It came at a time when the populace was finally ready to accept the wrongs of the past and say we really did this. This is our history. Roots, an eight-part drama that aired in 1977, won nine Emmys and helped propel long-form storytelling on television. It also helped change racial attitudes in Hollywood and propelled careers for actors such as Louis Gossett Jr. and Ben Vereen. Many of Chomsky's projects included Holocaust, Inside the Third Reich, and Attica were pulled from world events. The point I wanted to show with all of this was that people who seem perfectly normal and capable of committing are capable of committing hideous atrocities, he said. Chomsky was born in New York in 1929 and got a start as a set director before taking on directing assignments uh, for primetime shows such as The Wild Wild West. He also directed many episodes of the original Star Trek series. He was nominated for eight Emmys, winning with Peter the Great, Inside the Third Reich, Attica, and Holocaust. His final film was the 1995 TV movie Catherine the Great, starring Catherine Zeta-Jones. Chomsky is survived by three sons, David, Eric, and Peter, a producer whose credits include Fargo and Dead to Me, and a granddaughter, Liliana. That was Marvin Chomsky, 1929-2022, acclaimed director of Roots Star Trek by Steve Marvel, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 6, 2022. Alright, we have one final one here, from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, April 10, 2022, Max Guest. February 6, 1945 to March 25, 2022. Author unknown. Max Guest died on Friday, March 25th in Los Angeles at 77 years old. Once a refugee, he was a case study of the American dream.
Mr. Guest was born in Lodz, Poland in 1945 to Jewish parents who returned to Eastern Europe after taking refuge in the Soviet Union during the Second World War. In the context of post-war anti-Semitic violence in Poland, his family fled to an American-run displaced persons camp in Stuttgart, Germany in 1949. He and his family arrived on New York City's Ellis Island by boat. With neither money nor English, his parents settled in a tenement in the South Bronx and later on a chicken farm in Vineland, New Jersey before moving to Los Angeles in 1961. Leveraging America's meritocracy and hard work, he earned a bachelor's degree from Cal State LA in 1966, a law degree from Loyola Law School in 1969, and embarked on a law career. After practicing military law, family law, and personal injury law for two decades, Mr. Guest came to distinguish himself in the field of federal workers' compensation. Across the subsequent three decades, Mr. Guest assisted thousands of federal government employees, from letter carriers to high-level bureaucrats, from nurses to secret service agents, with claims for medical care and after-work-related injuries and illnesses from his Los Angeles-based practice. Over time, Mr. Guest's expertise attracted national attention. For a number of years, he was the chairman of the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs Litigation Group, he, uh, now the Federal Employees' Compensation Act Law and Advocacy Group. He authored numerous articles and delivered lectures on his specialty to various audiences across the United States and Canada. Through it all, there was a sense of duty to his clients in whose struggles and aspirations he saw his own. More than an attorney, Mr. Guest was an Eagle Scout, an avid tennis and racquetball player, and a bookworm. He spent hours upon hours reading popular fiction in the solace of his verdant garden or overlooking valleys and oceans when on holiday. He was also an amateur magician who left to thrill children with shows involving disappearing rabbits and coins. Perhaps his greatest trick was to prioritize his family through his life. Mr. Guest was a beloved husband, father, father-in-law, grandfather, and a friend to many. Born into a world of change, he was a force of stability and integrity, a, good for, a force for good. The family requests those who wish to express sympathy to consider making a donation to World Central Kitchen, www.wck.org, or the American Immigration Council, www.americanimmigrationcouncil.org. That was Max Guest, February 6, 1945 to March 25, 2022. Author unknown from the Los Angeles Times Obituary Notices section, Sunday, April 10, 2022. We got a couple of stories from Israel here this week, so let's go with it. This first one is from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, April 7, 2022. Israel's ruling alliance in crisis. Lawmakers' exit over bread in hospitals uh, could topple the government and lead to elections again, from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. An Israeli lawmaker quit the government's wafer-thin ruling coalition Wednesday after infighting over bread in hospitals on the Jewish holiday of Passover, throwing the fragile alliance into disarray and depriving it of a majority in parliament. Backbencher Idit Silman's departure raises the possibility of new parliamentary elections less than a year after the government took office with Prime Minister Naftali Bennett as, at the helm. 
while Bennett's government remains in power, it is now hamstrung in the 120-seat Knesset and will probably struggle to function. Silman, from Bennett's religious nationalist Yamina party, had opposed allowing people to bring leavened bread and other foodstuffs into public hospitals during the Passover holiday, products prohibited according to a religious tradition. Public broadcaster can uh, report it. For some devout Jews, the mere presence of such foods in the hospital is not kosher. But the country's Supreme Court ruled in 2021 that hospitals could not bar people from doing so. Bennett's coalition of eight political parties, ranging from Islamists to hardline Israeli nationalists, united solely in their opposition to former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, now holds 60 seats in the Knesset. But some members of Bennett's party have been uncomfortable with, the, with its alliance at, with Islamist and liberal parties since the government's inception in June. One member broke ranks rather than be a part of it. Earlier this week, Simon feuded with Health Minister Nitzan Horowitz, head of the Dovish and, Secu and Secular Meretz party, over his determination that hospitals uphold the law and not bar people from bringing bread in during Passover. Silman said in a letter to Bennett that key values in my worldview are inconsistent with current reality and that she could no longer stand to see those unspecified values harmed as a member of the coalition. She urged the Prime Minister to acknowledge the truth. We tried. The time has come to think of a new course, to try to form a nationalist Jewish Zionist government. The Knesset is in recess, and it's unclear whether the opposition will now have enough support to hold a no-confidence vote and send Israelis to the polls for the fifth time in slightly more than three years. To top of the government, opposition lawmakers would need to secure 61 votes in favor of dissolving parliament or in favor of the formation of an alternative government coalition. Netanyahu and other opposition politicians called on other members of Bennett's party to follow Silman in order to achieve that aim. To friends still sitting in the co this coalition, I say, come home, Netanyahu said in a statement. Join Idid Silman, join us. And together we will return Israel to the track of success, achievement, security, and peace. Israel held four elections in two years in a protracted political crisis over Netanyahu's fitness to rule while on trial for corruption. The deadlock outcomes uh, were finally broken in June, when Bennett and his allies ousted Netanyahu after 12 years in office. Yohanan uh, Pizer President of the Israel Democracy Institute think tank said that although Silman's departure didn't bring down the government, it does bring the country back to political crisis mode. That was Israel's ruling Alliance in Crisis from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times World Section, Thursday, April 7, 2022. Alright, here's one more from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, April 8, 2022. Two killed in Tel Aviv in latest burst of violence in Israel by Ariel Shalit and Joseph Kraus. Tel Aviv An attacker opened fire into a crowded bar in central Tel Aviv on Thursday evening, killing at least two people and wounding several others before fleeing into a dense residential area, Israeli officials said. Police said they were indications it was a politically motivated attack and it was the fourth deadly assault in Israel in less than three weeks at a time of heightened Israeli-Palestinian tensions. 
The militant group Hamas, which rules the Gaza Strip, praised the attack but did not claim responsibility. Hours after the shooting, the gunmen remained at large. Hundreds of police officers, canine units, and Army Special Forces soldiers were conducting a manhunt in central Tel Aviv, searching building by building through the heavily populated residential neighborhoods. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett met with top security officials and ordered reinforcements uh, into the city. Wherever the terrorist is, we'll get to him, and everyone who helps him indirectly or directly will pay a price, he said in a statement. Amakai Eshed, the Tel Aviv police commissioner, said the, shooting op the shooter opened fire into the bar at about 9 p.m. and then fled. Our working assumption is that he is still in the vicinity, Eshed told reporters. As of right now, they are indications pointing to this being a terrorist attack, but I have to be very delicate about this and say that we are also checking other leads. The Magan David Adome Emergency Service said two men, each about 30 years old, were killed. Seven other people were wounded, three seriously, it said. The shooting took place on Dinzengoff Street, a central thoroughfare uh, that has seen other attacks over the years. Most recently, an Arab-Israeli citizen shot and killed two Israelis and wounded several others on the street in January 2016. Thursday's attack took place at the start of the Israelis' weekend in the popular nightlife area. Mannix described scenes of panic with dozens of people fleeing after the, shoot the shots were fired. Tensions have been high after a string of attacks by Palestinian assailants killed 11 people just before the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, <clears throat> which began last weekend. Last year, protests and clashes in Jerusalem during Ramadan ignited an 11-day Gaza war. Israeli, Jordanian, and Palestinian leaders have held a flurry of meetings in recent weeks, and Israel has taken a number of steps aimed at calming tensions, including issuing thousands of additional work permits for Palestinians, uh, for Palestinians from the Gaza Strip. Before the attack, Israel had said it would allow women, children, and men older than 40 from the occupied West Bank to pray at the Al-Aqiza Mosque in East Jerusalem on Friday, the first weekly prayers of Ramadan. Tens of thousands were expected to attend. The mosque is the third holiest site in Islam and sits on a hilltop that is the most sacred site for Jews who refer to it as the Temple Mount. The site has long been a tinderbox for Israeli-Palestinian violence. Israel has worked to sideline the Palestinian issue in recent years, instead focusing on forging alliances with Arab states against Iran. But the century-old conflict remains an intract as intractable as ever. Israel captured East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip in the 1967 Middle East War. Palestinians won all three territories to form their future state. The last substantive peace talks broke down more than a decade ago, and Bennett is opposed to Palestinian statehood. Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem is not recognized internationally but Israel considers all of Jerusalem its capital. It is building and expanding Jewish settlements in the West Bank, which most of the international community considers illegal. Israel withdrew soldiers and settlers from Gaza in 2005,
but along with neighboring Egypt, it imposed a crippling blockade on the territory after Hamas seized power from the rival Palestinian Authority two years later. Israel and Hamas have fought four wars since. Hamas spokesman Abdul Latif Quanau said late Thursday that the heroic attack in the heart of the, Is uh, the Israeli entity has struck the Zionist security system and proved our people's ability to hurt the occupation. The recent attacks appear to have been carried out by lone assailants. No Palestinian militant group has claimed responsibility. Israel says the conflict stems from the Palestinians' refusal to accept its existence and blames the attacks in part on incitement on social media. Palestinians say such attacks are the inevitable result of a nearly 55-year military occupation that shows no signs of ending. That was two killed in Tel Aviv in latest burst of violence in Israel by Ariel Shalit and Joseph Krauss from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, April 8, 2022. Shalit and Krauss write for the Associated Press. All right, we've got a couple of articles here with regards to what is going on in Ukraine, more specifically with their Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky. So let's go to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 4th, 2022. Zelensky asks, support us. Ukraine's president delivers a powerful plea for help saying music will break through by Christine Karas. Christy Karas. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared on screen Sunday at the 2022 Grammy Awards to deliver a powerful speech about the war in his home country. Before singer-songwriter John Legend launched into a moving tribute performance of a new song, Free, Zelensky spoke via video about the devastation Ukrainians have endured since Russia invaded the nation earlier this year. The war. What's more opposite to music, he said our silence of ruined cities and killed people. Our children draw swooping rockets, not shooting stars. Over 400 children have been injured and 153 children died, and we will never see them drawn. Our parents are happy to wake up in the morning, in bomb shelters, but alive. Our loved ones don't know if we will be together again. The war doesn't let us choose who survives and who stays in eternal life. During the Grammys set, Legend was joined by Ukrainian performers, including Susanna Igladon, originally from Odessa, Mike Newton, whose sister is serving in the Ukrainian army, and Liba Yakim Yakimchuk, who fled Ukraine days prior. On stage, they wore either blue or gold, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. On a massive screen behind the musicians flashed images of a bombed apartment building, a government building on fire, families crowded into a subway station used as a bomb shelter, children being loaded onto evacuation trains, and a crying mother. Our musicians wear body armor instead of tuxedos. They sing to the wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them, Zelensky continued in his statement. But the music will break through anyway. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs, the dead silence. Fill the silence with your music. Feel it today to tell our story. Tell the truth about this war on your social networks, on TV. 
The Grammys is the latest awards to, uh, special to pay homage to Ukraine after the Academy Awards briefly acknowledged the Russian invasion last week. At the Oscars, audience members observed a moment of silence while a message of solidarity materialized on screen. After Legend's musical tribute, viewers were encouraged to hashtag stand up for Ukraine by donating to Global Citizens Relief Effort at ForUkraine.com. Support us in any way you can. Any, but not silence, Zelensky said. Then peace will come to all our cities, and the war is destroying Chernihiv, Kharkiv, Volnovaka, Mariupol, and others. They are legends already, but I have a dream of them living, and free, like you, on the Grammy stage. That was Zelensky Asks Support Us by Christy Karras from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 4th, 2022. All right, we go to a follow-up article here from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 6, 2022. Ukraine leader scolds the UN over war. Zelensky, in a fiery speech uh, to the uh, Security Council, says Russia must be held accountable for its recent horrors. By Patrick J. McDonnell, Laura King, and Jenny Jarvey. Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is an unimpassioned ad- in an impassioned address to the UN Security Council on Tuesday likened perceived Russian atrocities in his homeland to Nazi war crimes, calling for Nuremberg-style tribunals to hold Moscow accountable. They shot and killed women in their houses, they killed entire families, adults and children, and they tried to burn the bodies, Zelensky said in a video appearance before the Security Council a day after an emotional visit to the ravaged town of Buka outside the capital of Kiev. They cut off limbs, slashed throats, raped women in front of their children, the Ukrainian leader said in his most forceful excoriation to date of the Russian invasion. And perhaps a risky strategy of sharpening, of sharply criticizing the body from which he is seeking help, Zelensky issued a stark challenge to world institutions such as the United Nations to make sweeping changes to the global security architecture, asking sardonically at one point, are you ready to close the UN? It is obvious that the key institutions of the world simply cannot work effectively, said the 44-year-old president, who has won worldwide accolades for his presiding for presiding over his compatriots' fierce and sustained resistance to the Russian attempt to subjugate Ukraine. Following a Russian pullback from areas around the Ukrainian capital, horrific images and footage have emerged in recent days from the once placid Kiev suburbs and other northern areas. Bodies lining the streets, corpses with bound hands, the forlorn figure of a man shot dead, sprawled beside his bicycle. At least 410 bodies have been found, including many bearing signs of torture, Ukrainian officials say. The small town of Borodyanka, about 15 miles northwest of Buka, was reduced to ruins. Video showed multi-story buildings along the main uh, throughout uh, thoroughfare ravaged and burned by airstrikes after Russian forces withdrew. Several collapsed. Officials have said they fear hundreds of people in the town could be dead in the rubble. More such harrowing scenes are likely to emerge, Zelensky said, as Ukrainian forces reassert control in northern areas previously occupied by Russian troops who are now 
redeploying and refitting for what Ukrainian and Western officials believe is a redoubled offensive in the country's south and east. The world has yet to see what they have done in other occupied cities and regions of our country, Zelensky said. The alleged atrocities have set off a new wave of calls for a halt to the fighting and for broad new sanctions against Russia, including a proposal by the European Union's executive arm for a ban on imports from Russia. Uh, imports of Russian coal. It is more urgent by the day to silence the guns, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres told the Security Council before Zelensky spoke, citing not only the devastation in Ukraine, but a rapidly developing food crisis in parts of the world as a result of the war. Nearly six weeks into the war, Ukrainian and Western defense officials warned of a reinvigorated Russian assault in the country's eastern industrial heartland and elsewhere. This is a crucial phase of the war, NATO, chi NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg told reporters in Brussels in advance of a North Atlantic Treaty Organization ministerial meeting beginning Wednesday. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken is scheduled to attend. Despite a reprieve for Kiev and surrounding areas, Ukraine's military said Russian forces largely repelled in the, north, in the country's north were readying a fresh offensive in the eastern Donbas region and in southern Ukraine. Underscoring that peril faced by humanitarian workers trying to ease desperate hardships in besieged areas, a senior Ukrainian official said a Red Cross, uh, a Red Cross team detained near the strategic southern port of Mariupol had been released. But tens of thousands of residents remained in danger in the encircled city. Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister, Aryana Vereshchuk, said more than 3,800 people, including more than 2,200 in private vehicles from Mariupol and Berdyansk, were evacuated through specially designated humanitarian evacuation corridors on Tuesday. A convoy of seven buses and more than 40 private cars sent to evacuate civilians from Mariupol, however, was forced to return after encountering a blockade about 12 miles outside the city. Previous efforts have often been derailed by fighting and a Russian shelling. Moscow was scoped at the growing body of evidence that, it, uh, that its occupying troops have targeted and tortured civilians, dismissing photos of as staged and victim testimony as false. We continue to insist that all accusations against Russia, against Russian military, are not merely groundless, but a well-directed show, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters Tuesday, according to Russian state media outlet tasks. Nothing but a tragic show. Blinken said Tuesday that the atrocities committed in Buka were not the work of a rogue Russian unit, but part of a deliberate campaign to kill, to torture, to rape, to commit atrocities. The reports are more than credible, he told reporters traveling with him to Brussels. The evidence is there for the, for the world to see. Blinken said the U.S. and other nations were working to collect the evidence to build a strong case against Russia. The Pentagon announced Tuesday night that the Biden administration had authorized an additional shipment of military supplies, up to $100 million in Javelin anti-armor missile systems from existing Defense Department stockpiles, bringing the total U.S. Uh, security commitment to Ukraine to $1.7 billion since Russia invaded on February 24. The White House said in a statement 
that the U.S., the United States, and Australia have agreed on bolstering their cooperation on developing new hypersonic weapons that can fly at ten times the speed of sound and evade missile defense systems. Meanwhile, Army General Mark A. Miley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told Congress that the U.S. should seek to develop more bases in Eastern Europe where NATO allies fear further Russian aggression. My advice would be to create permanent bases, uh, but don't permanently station, so you get so you get the effect of permanence by rotational forces cycling uh, through permanent bases. He said Tuesday at a defense budget hearing. I believe that a lot of our European allies, especially those such as the Baltics or Poland and Romania and elsewhere, they're very willing to establish permanent bases. Uh, Milley said, "I uh, they're building them; they'll pay, uh, pay for them." Amid the growing international outcry, and call to action by the Security Council is all but certain to be blunted by permanent members China and Russia. In an address to the Security Council, China's ambassador to the UN, Zhang Jun, said Tuesday that the images from Bukha were very disturbing, but the independent investigators must verify the facts. Humanitarian issues should not be politicized, he said. The White House is set to announce Wednesday a new round of sweeping sanctions against Russia, according to a source familiar with the announcement. The U.S., in coordination with the, Euro with the Group of Seven and the European Union, is expected to ban all new investment and, in and increase economic penalties on financial institutions and state-owned enterprises in Russia in a bid to degrade key instruments of Russian state power, impose acute and immediate economic harm on Russia, and hold accountable the Russian kleptocracy that funds and supports Putin's war. On Tuesday, more European Union countries, including Italy, Denmark, Portugal, Spain, and Sweden, joined France and Germany in announcing or carrying out expulsions of dozens of Russian diplomats over the mounting proof of atrocities by Moscow. The Kremlin warned there would be symmetrical diplomatic retribution. In a signal of European solidarity, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission President, is to travel to Kiev this week, her spokesman said. She is to be accompanied by the top European Union diplomat, Joseph Borrell. The war zone talks with Zelensky would be the latest in-person visit by high-ranking European officials since the invasion began. Last week, European Parliament President Roberta Metsola traveled to Kiev bearing a message of hope. Last month, leaders from Poland, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic, Republic took a, risk, a risky train ride to Kiev to express their support. The Ukrainian capital, while seemingly out of immediate danger of a full-scale assault, still has the feel of a city ready for war. Most shops are closed but residents walk their dogs or go out for a jog in the late winter chill, the weather hardly betraying the arrival of spring. Residents have become accustomed to the matrix of checkpoints that block entrances and exits to neighborhoods, piles of sandbags covered in camouflage, netting, and, and some shredded fabric for additional concealment. Burly troops in winter gear and body armor totting assault, assault rifles check drivers' IDs as there is considerable concern about Russian infiltrators and saboteurs. On broad downtown boulevards, traffic appeared relatively light Tuesday morning, but vehicles lined up at checkpoints 
on the city's periphery. In Ukraine's south, Doctors Without Borders said, said a four-member team met Monday with health authorities in an oncology hospital in the port city of Mykolaiv, where the facility came under fire. Several explosions took place in close proximity to our staff over the course of about 10 minutes. Michael Oliver Lacharte, the group's head of mission in Ukraine, said in a statement Tuesday. The team members were able to take over and were not hurt, Lacharte said, but uh, the windows of their vehicle were blown out as they, and as they left, they saw injured people and at least one body. A pediatric hospital about 330 yards away in a residential area east of the city was also hit. In the northeast, Ole Sinyahubov, the military governor of Ukraine's Kharkiv region, said Tuesday that Russian forces had killed six people and injured eight others in Kharkiv and Chihuiv. Over the past day, the occupiers have struck 54 strikes from various long-range weapons, artillery strikes, mortar, and tank shelling, he said in a statement on Telegram. In the, we in the country's east, Western analysts and op officials have said they expect Russian forces to push to expand beyond the territory where the Kremlin has uh, fomented a separatist conflict for eight years. The Ukrainian military's general staff wrote on Facebook that in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, Russian forces were trying to take control of the cities of Pas Pasana and Rubzine while continuing to lay siege to Mari Mariupol, whose capture would be key to establishing a land bridge with the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia seized in 2014. The enemy is regrouping uh, troops and concentrating its efforts on preparing an offensive operation in the east of our country, the statement said, adding that the objective was full control over the territory of Donetsk and Luhansk re regions. British military intelligence said in an assessment that Ukrainian forces had reasserted control of some crucial northern terrain, including areas around the city of uh, Cherniv and north of Kiev, although it said low-level fighting might persist in some of those areas. Many of those Russian units, however, will be unable to redeploy to eastern Ukraine until they have undergone significant refitting, the assessment said. With nearly a quarter of Ukraine's population displaced by war and more than four million seeking safety beyond its borders, the biggest uh, movement of refugees seen within Europe since World War II has prompted action from some unusual quarters. In scenes carried live Tuesday by Japan's national broadcaster NHK20, uh, NHK, 20 Ukrainian refugees arrived from Poland on a special flight arranged by the foreign minister in a high-profile show of support. There are already about 400 Ukrainian refugees in Japan. That was Ukraine leader scolds the UN over war by Patrick J. McDonnell, Laura King, and Jenny Jarvey from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 6, 2022. McDonnell reported from Kiev, King from Budapest, Hungary, and Jarvey from Atlanta. Time staff writers Tracy Wilkinson and Courtney Serbramanian in Washington contributed to this report. Alright, so let's take leave of that and go on to an opinion article here 
from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 4th, 2022. A Vanishing Connection to the Holocaust. My high school barely teaches it. Without the first-hand accounts of survivors like my grandfather, will the horror fade away? By Gabriel Ascoli. What's the difference between a Jew and a Boy Scout? A friend asked with a broad grin on his face as I sat down in my 7th grade science class. The Boy Scout comes back from camp! He and everyone else on my table burst out laughing. Did my classmates even know what they were laughing about? Upset but unsure, I feigned a smile. I'm ashamed to say I said nothing. I grew up hearing about the Holocaust through the stories of my grandfather, now 92, uh, told about his perilous escape from fascist Italy as a teenager. He described the indifference he saw in the eyes of soldiers and civilians alike, the fear in his parents' hushed voices as they planned to flee. Now his heart pounded as he slid under a fence uh, to reach Switzerland while holding his three-year-old sister in his lap. He escaped only hours before German soldiers showed up at his home in Milan to take his family to a concentration camp. It is a miracle that he survived and that I am here today. When I look into his eyes as he recalls his frantic getaway, I see him reliving the history my friend had so unabashedly joked about. My generation is the last one that will be able to talk to Holocaust survivors and people who experienced life in Nazi Europe. As this crucial connection to the Holocaust fades, so will our collective memory of it. When there are no more living survivors, Holocaust denialism will become easier and more mainstream. I am a junior in high school, and my formal education on this topic has consisted of one slide with a brief depiction of concentration camps and a short worksheet. If this is all that I've been taught, it's no surprise that Holocaust knowledge nationwide is severely lacking. Almost one in three American adults say they believe that fewer than two million people were killed and about one in ten people aren't sure the Holocaust even occurred. In a national survey, 11% of Millennials and Gen Z report believing that Jews created the Holocaust. To be clear, two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population was murdered. Eighty years later, as anti-Semitism is on the rise, and 80s anti-Semitism is on the rise, as a Jewish American, I've had to walk past security guards and a metal detector to enter my synagogue for fear of shootings. Swastikas have been painted on schools, Jewish centers, even a State Department elevator. When I recall the chance of Jews will not replace us by white supremacist protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, it chills me to my core. Earlier this school year, one of my teachers made an offhand comment insinuating because I was Jewish, I must have money. Last spring, someone dropped an anti-Semitic note on my family's doorstep that called government officials Jew-inspired communists. Accepting stereotypes and making threats have the potential to turn into far worse. In middle school, I invited my grandfather to speak to my classmates about his experiences during the Holocaust. He spoke about his good luck. He'd been playing ball with friends when he drew the short straw and had to retrieve water for the group from a home and encountered his panicked family almost out the door. He talked about his parents' decision to accept his help of Italian soldiers at the Swiss border, despite the risk of betrayal, and about his dreary and demoralizing life as a teenager in a refugee camp. My peers listened with their mouths open, much like I do every time I hear these stories. After he finished, he had tears in his eyes. Then someone asked, why were non-Jews doing what were non-Jews doing to stop this? 
I have heard so little about the Holocaust during my years in school that if I didn't have intimate personal connections to it, I could easily put it in the back of my mind. My 10th grade history class in Virginia spent weeks elaborating on the way of life of ancient Mesopotamians and less than a day on the Holocaust. It's hard to fathom. Virginia requires four years of high school history. And World War and World History, too, is the only course that touches on the Holocaust. State guidelines for this class include teaching 61 broad topics. One of them folds the Holocaust into examples of genocide in the 21st century. It's not enough. Such gaps in, edu in education about the Holocaust make me afraid. I'm afraid that the collective ignorance in and ongoing hatred of Jews will grow into something so much more and it makes me fear for my loved ones and myself. I'm afraid that I'm seeing seeds of civil unrest and educators aren't doing enough to stop it. When my friend made that joke in seventh grade, I said nothing because I didn't want to be ostracized for ruining his funny moment. I now recognize that his comment stemmed from ignorance. Each generation needs to be taught about the events and ideology that allowed the Holocaust to occur so that it can never so that it can be given an opportunity to be under, to understand the horrifying consequences of unchecked hate and ignorance. We need to make sure the lessons of the Holocaust outlive the last survivors. That was a vanishing connection to the Holocaust by Gabriel Ascoli from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 4th, 2022. Gabriel Ascoli is a a junior at Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in Alexandria, Virginia. All right, now let's move on to this one from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 10, 2022. Synagogue ready for a new start after a hostage standoff. Texas congregation will return this week after repairs healing from January attack. From the Associated Press. Colleyville, Texas. In the three months since Rabbi Charlie Cintron Walker and three of his congregants were held at gunpoint in their Texas synagogue, new carpet has been laid in the sanctuary, the walls have been repainted, the entry retiled, and new doors installed. He said it has been healing to watch. Each time, each time I came back in, I got to, I got to see us moving forward, Cintron Walker said. Congregation Beth Israel in the Fort Worth suburb of Colleyville will be rededicated Friday, and members will celebrate Shabbat in their own building for the first time since the attack. After the 10-hour standoff on January 15, ending with the escape of the remaining hostages and an FBI tactical team rushing in and killing the gunmen, the synagogue was left with broken doors and windows, bullet holes, and shattered glass. Anna Salton Eisen, a founder of the synagogue, said the scene reminded her of abandoned synagogues still marked with bullets from World War II that she saw while visiting Poland in 1998 with her parents, both Holocaust survivors. I was standing in my synagogue this time, and it was just empty and silent, and it showed the marks of the violence that had occurred, she said. Eisen said she believes the congregation's return will help the healing process. We are not defeated, and we are not going to live in fear, she said. Leaders of the congregation of about 160 families said that while holding services at a Methodist church during the repairs, they've been struck by the outpouring of love and support they've received. They said they want to focus on fighting anti-Semitism, which led the gunmen to their synagogue. It's my hope 
and my prayer that there is greater awareness about how damaging hate can be, Citron Walker said, who will start a new job in July at Temple Emanuel in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He was preparing for a morning service that Saturday in January when a stranger came to the synagogue's door. The man said he'd spent the winter night outside and Citron Walker welcomed him in, chatting with him and making him tea. Then, as Citron, Citron Walker and three of his congregants prayed, and the others participated online, they heard the click from a gun. The stranger, British National Malik Faisal Akram, took the four people present hostage and during the stand-up demanded the release of a Pakistani woman serving a lengthy prison sentence in Fort Worth after being convicted of trying to kill U.S. troops. The hostages have said Akram cited anti-Semitic stereotypes, believing that Jews wielded the power to get women released. Uh, one hostage, 85-year-old Lawrence Schwartz, was released after about six hours. Around 9 p.m., Citron Walker threw a chair at Akram, and the rabbi and the other two remaining hostages escaped outside a door. Citron Walker has credited uh, past security training for helping them get out safely, including training uh, he received from the Secure Community Network, founded in 2004 by Jewish organizations in North America. The hostage-taking in Texas came just over three years after America's deadliest anti-Semitic attack when a gunman killed 11 worshippers from three congregations meeting at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue. We believe the training is absolutely critical, said Michael Masters, Secure Community Network's National Director and Chief Executive. You very rarely rise to an occasion in a critical incident. You fall back to your level of training. He said the nonprofit trained more than 17,000 people last year and surpassed that number in the first three months of 2022. Congregation Beth Israel President Michael Finfer said Thursday that the synagogue would continue to do security training and would have far more police security than before. Jeff Cohen, one of the four hostages, and the congregation's vice president and security director said he's excited about returning to their synagogue this week. That's part of the uh, processing, he said, of coming to terms with what had happened there. It's, it's to look at where we're going to be. That was synagogue ready for a new start after a hostage standoff. From the Associated Press, out of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 10, 2022. All right, and we have this one from the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 10, 2022. Everybody Can Have a Slice, A New School of Jewish Deli Bagel Shop Owners by Jean Trin. One of the walls at Wise Sons in Culver City is adorned with more than a dozen frames that hold vintage-style pennants. But they're not a tribute to sports teams of another era. They're emblazoned with the names of local Jewish delis from Langer's to Nate and Al's. I grew up eating at many of the, uh, these spots and wanted to pay respect to those that shaped wise sons and have served the local community before we came, said Evan Bloom, the 35-year-old co-founder. Bloom, uh, who grew up in Ventura and often visited his grandparents in West Los Angeles, spent his childhood frequenting local restaurants such as the now-closed Juniors and Pico Kosher Delis. He currently lives in the Bay Area. There are six Wise Sons locations in Northern California, but he hopes to eventually move back to Southern California, where his family resides. 
Opening a restaurant in the area was a step toward that goal. As Bloom uh, was entering the L.A. food space, he stumbled upon a community of new generation Jewish deli and bagel shop owners, such as Nick Schreiber, co-owner of Bell's Bagels in Highland Park. The two men had been virtual cheerleaders for each other's businesses on Instagram, but a year ago they became friends. Bloom was working on opening in Culver City, and Schreiber was gearing up to transform his current bagel shop into a deli and bar, which he plans to launch in mid-2022. Now they're frequently text, they frequently text each other with details about the best ovens and vendors or the way to heat pastrami. Schreiber's team visited Wise Sons in October to learn how the lunch service is run. Bloom stopped by Bell's to test out a, ro a rotating oven. He ended up buying the same one. There was this interesting symbiosis where we were helping them navigate the LA landscape and they were helping us navigate the Delhi landscape at the same time, said Schreiber, 35. That willingness to share practical information, even trade secrets, is a mindset associated with many participants in today's modern Jewish daily movement. They seem to have unknowingly followed the footsteps of their LA predecessors, even taking it to the next level. LA's traditional deli culture started to bloom in the first half of the 20th century as descendants of Jewish settlers on the East Coast moved west. Some of the restaurants moved as well, including Cantor's Deli, which first opened in New Jersey and relocated to LA in 1931. In other cities, Jewish deli owners seemed to silently pray for the demise of their competitors, regarding any overtures of camaraderie with outright suspicion. David Sachs wrote in his 2011 book, Save the Deli in Search of Perfect Pastrami, Crusty Rye, and the Heart of Jewish Delicatessen. But LA's Jewish deli culture was different. Today, there's a sense of solidarity among many of LA's long-standing Jewish deli owners, Jacqueline Cantor, co-owner of Cantor's Deli, said. Uh, she, uh, she recently shared a meal with her friend and Factor's famous deli co-owner, Susie Markowitz, as they chatted about their restaurants. Cantor's family has shared and compared notes on brisket recipes with other deli owners and shared supplies. Even every time another deli runs out of something, let's just say a deli in the valley runs out of rye bread, then they call me up and I give them whatever it is they need. All the delis share, she says. The same goes for the newer restaurants. Many old-school standbys have shuttered in recent years, such as West Hollywood's Green Blatt's Deli, Label's Table in the Pico Robertson area, and Jerry's Famous Deli in Marina del Rey. But new takes on Jewish food have been emerging over the last decade, from places such as Wexler's Deli in downtown L.A. and Santa Monica, Bertie G's in Santa Monica, and the Bad Jew Pop-Up. The new chefs and restauranteurs are updating traditional dishes at many levels, Bertie G's, for example, offers a matzo ball soup with miso. Wexler's Deli, one of Los Angeles' first modern takes on traditional Jewish food, opened in 2014. From the start, founder Micah Wexler, who has a background in fine dining, used traditional methods to cure and smoke his own pastrami and salmon in-house. A lot of my generation of deli guys wanted to really take things back to the roots and figure out how to make a lot of these products, said Wexler, who was no longer involved with the restaurant's operations. Whether it was the smoked meats, 
the smoked fish, or the bagels, and take that back to craftsmanship, handmade and housemade kind of thing. As the modern Jewish deli food movement evolved in L.A., and people were growing more interested in the craft of making items such as pastrami, uh, smoked fish, and bagels in-house, it became a commonplace for folks, Bloom and Schreiber among them, to reach out to Wexler and ask questions. I always try to try my best to help them out, Wexler, said Wexler39. There seems to be a lot of reaching out. Recently, Rebecca King, who smokes corned pork and pork pastrami under the name the Bad Jew reached out to Bloom. She's been doing pop-ups, in, including selling at Smorgasburg, the downtown food market, and has been wanting to get into the wholesale business. A friend suggested she ask Bloom, who also started his business as a pop-up, for advice. She brought her smoked meals to Wise Sons, and they talked for an hour and a half. He sent me his business plan because I'm still new to the industry, said King32. He's been a bit of a mentor and super sweet. King also has found camaraderie among other Jewish delis, such as the Nash of Beverly Hills, where she's held pop-ups, and Bertie G's, where she staged under, under, where she staged under Chef Joel Spadafor and learned about brimming, brinning and fermentation. This willingness to share knowledge has extended into the bagel-making community. Schreiber is an ongoing text thread with Jason Kaplan of Murray's Inn uh, in Silver Lake and Trevor Ferris of Hanks in Burbank and Sherman Oaks, where they share food and business tips. Schreiber jokingly dubbed them the Real Bagel Boys of Los Angeles. They lent one another bags of flour when delivery orders are short, chatted about the best ways to get uh, seeds to stick to the bagels and even share sta shared starters. Kaplan recalls a time when bagel broker owner Jason Tarnall uh, let him come in to check out a bagel machine at his West Hollywood restaurant. He wanted to carry that spirit of helping others forward. Back in the days of one-upsmanship in Manhattan, there was a lot of like, we've got the biggest bagels, said Kaplan 53, who used to live in New York. There was a lot of secrecy in terms of how things were done. You had to join the union, be able to handle a certain number of bagels in an hour, and things were really cutthroat. That's not how I am. I'm more of a, as Oprah says, run-your-own-race person. Kaplan said Ferris, Kaplan and Ferris aren't afraid to share with each other because they are confident that everyone makes their own distinct bagels. Ferris, 37, who's worked in the food and beer industry for the last decade, has found the bagel community, not just in L.A., but across the country, unusually supportive. There's just a feeling of community and sharing, like everyone wants everybody else to do well, whereas I've worked in other restaurants where it's felt a little more competitive. Wexler believes the openness is something that has been blossoming all over the industry, a stark difference from his earlier days working in, a rest in restaurants. Everybody's still got their bag of tricks that maybe they keep close to the vest, but, but by and large, people are much more open with communicating and with helping each other out. That was Everybody Can Have a Slice by Jean Trin from the, uh, the weekend section, actually, of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 10, 2022. All right, we have something now from the Jerusalem Post website, jpost.com. This is called Jewish Men Stabbed in Anti-Semitic Attack in Lakewood by Zivi 
Geoffrey, uh, published April 10, 2022. Detectives arrested Dion Marsh after an investigation. Marsh is accused of stabbing a man and stealing a car and hitting two others. A Jewish man was stabbed in an apparent anti-Semitic attack by a man who stole the car and rammed into other victims on Friday in Lakewood and Jackson Township in New Jersey, according to the Lakewood Police Department and Ocean County Prosecutors. After an investigation conducted by the Major Crime Unit of the Prosecutor's Office and Lakewood Township Police Department, detectives arrested the suspect, Dion Marsh, at his residence in Manchester Township. All of the victims in the incident were reportedly Orthodox Jews. The victim, who was stabbed, was transferred by Hatsola to the hospital in serious condition, according to the Lakewood Scoop. According to the police, he was hospitalized in crucial but stable condition at Jersey Shore University Medical Center. The suspect first assaulted a driver and stole his car before hitting a pedestrian with it. He then stabbed a male Jewish victim in the chest about two hours later. He uh, hit another pedestrian with the same vehicle. Marsh was charged with three counts of bias intimidation, three counts of attempted murder, carjacking, possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose, and unlawful possession of a weapon. According to the Shore News Network, Brian Huntingberg, spokesperson for the prosecutor's office, said, uh, stated that the bias intimidation charges arose over statements Marsh made to detectives. Our investigation reveals that these criminal acts were committed throughout the day yesterday into early evening and that Marsh was acting alone and not in concert with anyone else, said Ocean County Prosecutor Bradley Billheimer. I'm grateful for the collaborative efforts of every police officer and detective that worked swiftly to identify Marsh and bring him into custody without further injury to anyone, he said. A tremendous job by all involved. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy also applauded the efforts of law enforcement officers in apprehending Marsh. Tammy and I pray for the full recovery of all victims, tweeted Murphy. The safety of our communities, and notably our communities of faith, is not only a paramount concern, but among my highest priorities. We will continue to partner with all who share this commitment so no resident ever needs to live in fear. The Anti-Defamation League stated that it is saddened and outraged by the series of attacks in Lakewood and Jackson. We are grateful to federal and local law enforcement for their swift response in apprehending the suspect and bringing charges that include bias intimidation, ADLNYNJ Regional Director Scott Richmond said. I am personally horrified at the cruelty with which the suspect allegedly conducted himself. More needs to be done proactively to prevent violence against the Jewish community and in particular visibly, in particular visible, visibly identifiable Jews in Ocean County and across the region, he said. We recommit ourselves and our organization to working with government, educational institutions, interfaith and intergroup partners, and law enforcement in order to achieve this goal, Richmond said. Jews should not be afraid to freely go about their business without living in fear that they will be targeted for violence. The past few years have seen far too many assaults against Jews. Agudath Israel of America, the main ultra-Orthodox organization in the country, said it was shocked and horrified by the brutal attacks against the Jewish victims and also commended the quick response by law enforcement officers.
And that was Jewish Man Stabbed in Anti-Semitic Attack in Lakewood by Zivi Joffrey, uh, April 10, 2022, from the Jerusalem Post website, jpost.com. All right, now here is a special article from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency website, jda.org. All the Jewish Major League Baseball players will see in 2022 by Jacob Gervis, April 7, 2022. Mm. After two pandemic, two pandemic altered seasons, a three-month lockout, and a truncated free agent frenzy, the 2022 Major League Baseball season has finally arrived. For Jewish fans of America's pastime, there is plenty to look forward to this season. From Atlanta Braves ace Max Fried, starting on opening day, to the fashionable uh, Jock Patterson playing for reigning National League Manager of the Year, Gabe Kapler. Here is a full rundown of what Jewish fans can look for in 2022, starting with the Jewish players on opening day roster. Max Fried, Atlanta Braves pitcher. Fried is the ace of the defending champions. He's coming off a 2021 season in which he won his second consecutive Golden Glove Award given to the league's best offensive pitcher and his first Silver Slugger Award for a best hitting pitcher. He will likely be the last to ever win that award as a pitcher as a universally designated hitter will be introduced this season. Freed also pitched his Braves to a World Series win. Alex Bregman, Houston Astros, third baseman. Staying healthy is at the top of this slugger's to-do list in 2022. Bregman played in only 91 games for Houston last year, but he will look to return to form this season. A form that included back-to-top, back-to-back top five finishes in the American League Most Valuable Players race in 2018 and 2019, when he hit 31 and 41 home runs, respectively. Joe Pat- Jock Patterson, San Francisco Giants outfielder. The Giants are hoping Patterson's World Series streak continues in 2022. The flashy outfielder won rings the last two years for the Dodgers and then the Braves. Patterson will now be playing for Jewish manager Gabe Kapler, who won the National League's Top Manager Award last year after guiding the Giants to a historic 107-win season. Rowdy Tellis, Milwaukee Brewers' first baseman and designated hitter. Tellez is entering his first full season in Milwaukee after being traded by Toronto last July. The lefty has some pop and he hit 21 homers in 2019 and will look to find a groove in his third full season in the big leagues. Dean Kremer, Baltimore Orioles pitcher. The first Israeli to sign an MLB contract, the young right-hander is starting the season with the club in Baltimore. He only has 17 big league games under his belt with an earned run average of near 7. The league leaders hover uh, hover around 2.5 to 3, so Kramer will have to prove himself to keep his spot with the team. Richard Blyer, Miami Marlins pitcher. Entering his seventh season, Blyer has proven to be a solid relief pitcher, sporting a career of 2.96 ERA. The soon-to-be 35-year-old signed a two-year extension with Miami during spring training. Scott Efros, Chicago Cubs pitcher. Efros made his Major League debut last season and made his first opening day roster for the Cubs this season. The 28-year-old righty has had a strong spring. Eli Morgan, Cleveland Guardians pitcher. 
Morgan is another young reliever who made his debut in 2021, starting 18 games for Cleveland after his call-up in May. Morgan will begin 2022 in the Guardians' bullpen. Uh, Garrett Stubbs, Philadelphia Phillies, catcher. After appearing in the World Series with Houston last season, Stubbs has moved over to Philly to become the backup to one of the game's better catchers, J.T. Realmuto. There are also several Jewish players who will look to crack into the big leagues this season, including some familiar faces. Kevin Pillar, Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder. Pillar has bounced around the league a bit since his debut in 2013. After playing for the Mets last year, the outfielder signed a minor league contract with L.A. He's a proven veteran and should see time this year, somewhere, as a fourth outfielder. Ryan Sheriff, Philadelphia Phillies pitcher. Sheriff is beginning the season on the injured list, but is expected to be in the Philadelphia bullpen once he returns from his left biceps tendonitis. Ty Kelly, Los Angeles Dodgers utility. A former Team Israel fan favorite, Kelly is the ultimate journeyman. He has played all over the minor leagues, independent ball, and in Israel, and even briefly retired. He signed a minor league deal with the Dodgers. Ryan Laver Lavarnway, Detroit Tigers catcher. Another Team Israel alum, Lavarnway signed a minor league contract with Detroit. He has not appeared in more than 10 big league games in a season since 2015. Jake Kalish, Los Angeles Angels pitcher. The 30-year-old pitcher has yet to make his major league debut despite a long career in the minors. He is, a, he is starting the season in AAA with the Salt Lake Bees. Zach Weiss, Los Angeles Angels pitcher. Weiss made his debut with Cincinnati in 2018 but hasn't broken out of the minor leagues yet since. Andy Yearsy, Arizona Diamondbacks catcher and first baseman. The 23-year-old Canadian was drafted in 2018 and has been playing in mostly low-level minors. He's shown some power with 21 home runs in 94 games last year. Rob Kaminsky, free agent pitcher. The former first-round pick hasn't appeared in a game since 2020. Finally, there's a special prospect to keep an eye on, Jacob Steinmetz. The first Orthodox Jew drafted into Major League Baseball, Steinmetz is the number 25 ranked prospect in the Diamondbacks organization and has had an impressive spring. He is likely years away from the big leagues, but it's worth keeping an eye on his development. And it wouldn't be a Jewish baseball preview without Sandy Koufax. The legendary pitcher will have his own statue unveiled at Dodger Stadium this summer. That was all the Jewish Major League Baseball players we'll see in 2022 by Jacob Gervis from uh, April 7th, 2022 from JTA.org. Da 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 You know the rest. Alright, now let's go to JewishJournal.com and we'll start off with this one right here. Orthodox Jewish men assaulted by six men in NYC. The NYPD is offering a $3,500 reward for any information leading to the arrest of the perpetrators. Thus far, only one of the perpetrators, an unidentified 16-year-old, has been arrested. By Aaron Bandler. A Hasidic Jewish man was assaulted by six men in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn on April 1st. The 21-year-old man, who has not been publicly identified, can be seen beaten nearby the side of a truck in a grainy footage 
released by the New York City Police Department. He suffered minor injuries following the assault. Anti-Defamation League New York, New Jersey Regional Director Scott Richman announced that they are offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the remaining perpetrators. We are shocked at the viciousness of these images of this incident that have been distributed over social media and other means, he said. Nobody should be subjected to hateful violence in the streets of New York. We must do everything in our power to help authorities identify and apprehend those responsible. And we must also work together in order to prevent these incidents from happening in the first place. ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt also tweeted, The ongoing violence and harassment against Orthodox Jewish people in Brooklyn is disgraceful. I hope the $10,000 reward expedites and the identification of the perpetrators of this latest crime. New York Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, tweeted that she was outraged by the gang assault of, on the Jewish man. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us, she said, adding that she is directing the state police hate crime task force to help the NYPD with their investigation. Representative Richie Torres, Democrat of New York, similarly tweeted, anti-Semitic hate crimes have quadrupled in NYC, a moral stain on the soul of our city. NYC should, uh, should, and, must make, should and must be a safe place for all people, including the Jewish community. Former Knesset member Michael Kotler-Wunsch responded to Torres by noting that it's important to recognize the mutation of anti-Semitism into anti-Zionism, including Zionists, Jews, and non-Jews alike. She linked to a previous tweet of hers highlighting a video of pro-Palestinian protesters in New York City chanting their opposition to a two-state solution because they want all of it, and that Zionist professors are not welcomed on your campus. The Simon Wiesenthal Center also tweeted, Attacks against religious Jews continue on the streets of New York. Need strong response from city's political and faith leaders, not only New York police. In addition to the attack of the Hasidic Jewish man, a group of Jewish teenagers were threatened by three teens with a machete, knife, and crowbar on April 2nd and were subjected to anti-Semitic slurs. The New York Jewish Week reported uh, Jewish Week reported. The New York Daily News also reported that the NYPD has been investigating 81 hate crimes against Jews across the city, four times more than the 20 that were reported on the same date last year. New York City Councilmember Gail Brewer told the Jewish Week, it's all very upsetting. This has to stop. And that was Orthodox Jewish Men Assaulted by Six Men in NYC by Aaron Bandler, April 4th, 2022. All right, we go on to this one. Uh, this one is pro-Palestinian protesters say Zionist professors are not welcomed on campus. Video footage from the protest shows Fatima Mohammed, a member of CUNY Law Students for Justice in Palestine, telling protesters uh, to demand that Zionist professors are not welcomed on your campus demand that Zionist students are not in spaces where Palestinian students are because Zionism is a, is a threat. Zionism is a genocidal threat to us, by Aaron Bandler. A couple of pro-Palestinian protesters said in an April 2nd protest in New York City that Zionist professors are not welcome on campus. 
video footage from the protest shows Fatima Mohammed, a member of CUNY Law Students for Justice in Palestine, telling protesters to demand that Zionist professors are not welcomed on your campus. Demand that Zionist students are not in spaces where Palestinian students are because Zionism is a threat. Zionism is a genocidal threat to us. Additionally, Nerdine Kiswani, who chairs the pro-Palestinian group within our lifetime, is also a member of CUNY, Law SJP, chanted, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, at the protest, and accused the Jewish National Fund and Jewish Communal Fund of being Zionist organizations that are hiding behind Judaism. Every single organization on that list is a legitimate target because every single organization on that list supports the Zionist entity, she added. <clears throat> Chancellor Professor of Computer Science Judea Pearl, who is also the president of the Daniel Pearl Foundation and National Academy of Sciences member, tweeted in response to the video, Dear Fatima Muhammad, I am one of those Zionist professors whom you wish to shun. Let me assure you that your organization, SJP, will be ousted from my campus way before me or any of my students, precisely because of racist demands such as those you have made today. Academia cannot tolerate student groups that call for the ethnic cleansing of other student groups. SJP, as well as other xenophobic or Islamophobic groups, have no place on any university campus. Uh, Representative Richie Torres, Democrat of New York, similarly tweeted, Following a terror attack murdering 11 Israelis, an activist calls for Zionist professors and students to be purged. How those Zionists are to be purged, she doesn't say. But the context here is hard to ignore. Globalize the Intifada is a call to anti-Semitic violence. Jewish groups echoed the tweets from Pearl and Torres. This isn't free speech. It's targeted harassment and enough is enough. Stamp Stop anti-Semitism tweeted. The Simon Weisenthal Center tweeted that the protesters are targeting Jews seeking to purge, demonize, and isolate them. Any protests from inside at CUNY, they asked. Stand with us CEO and co-founder Ross Rothstein tweeted, a group like SJP that systematically promotes bigotry and regularly harms campus climate for anyone who cares about hashtag Israel should not be allowed to operate, let alone be given funding to promote their racism. Students and Faculty for Equality, CUNY, a nonpartisan group advocating for Zionist Jews to be treated equally at CUNY, tweeted, Terroristic CUNY students call for expulsion of Zionist faculty and Jewish students from CUNY. Call for violence against all Jews at CUNY and NYC. CUNY administration response is deafening silence. Within her lifetime, and CUNY Law SJP did not respond to the journal's request for comment. And that was Pro-Palestinian Protesters Say Zionist Professors Are Not Welcomed on Campus by Aaron Bandler, April 6, 2022. Right here's this. Richie Torres, J Street Spar Over Iran Deal. Williams tweeted that Torres had told APAC that he approaches the issue not from the perspective of an American, but from the perspective of an Israeli. Should a U.S. lawmaker approach it from the perspective of U.S. interests, Williams asks, by Aaron Bandler, April 6, 2022. Representative Richie Torrey, Torres, Democrat of New York, and J Street Senior Vice President Dylan Williams sparred on Twitter over President Joe Biden's efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal. 
Williams tweeted that Torres had told AIPAC that he approaches the issue not from the perspective of an American, but from the perspective of an Israeli. Shouldn't a U.S. lawmaker approach it from the perspective of U.S. interests? William asked. In a follow-up tweet, he argued that Israel's top security experts believe the Trump administration should have never left the agreement. Torres replied to Williams by accusing him of taking what I said out of context and reframing empathy for a U.S. ally as though it were a form of dual loyalty. The fact that I might hold an opinion that differs from yours does not mean I care about America any less than you, Torres added. Your tweet is a cheap shot. APEC also criticized Williams' tweet. J Street is more critical of Torres than of terrorists, they tweeted. Democrat at Rep. Ritchie offered a global perspective to a question about a global danger, removing the, I, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the foreign terrorist list. He rightly opposes dele, uh, delisting a terror group that has killed more than 600 U.S. troops. The spat between Torres, J Street, and APEC comes as 18 House Democrats expressed concern over the potential New Deal at an April 6 press conference. Fox News reported, which included representatives Elaine Luria, Democrat of Virginia, Josh Gottenheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, and Juan Vargas, Democrat of California. Gottheimer uh, expressed concern that war criminal Russian President Vladimir Putin would be a guarantor for the deal. Vargas said that the Biden administration's handling of the deal was reminiscent of the Obama administration and that they keep us in the dark. Then, it turns out there are some fatal flaws. It was a bad deal then, and it was a bad deal now. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, also expressed skepticism over the deal, telling Jewish Insider on April 6, I'm very leery of the talks. I wasn't for it before, and I can't see myself changing my position. J Street tweeted that it was deeply disappointed that the group of Democrats are opposing the Iran nuclear deal. If President Biden's diplomacy succeeds, it will dramatically reduce Iran's nuclear activities and put them back under rigid inspection and monitoring, while maintaining key sanctions on Iran's malign regional activities, they argue. Diplomacy will make the U.S. and our allies safer and head off a crisis that could lead us to another disastrous, costly war in the Middle East, a war that the American people certainly do not want. Max Dubowitz, CEO of the Foundation of Defense Democracy's think tank, tweeted that it was amusing to see Iran echo chamber involved in, uh, invoking Israeli security officials to support the new Iran deal. These officials think it's an awful agreement, but they want more time to prepare a military strike option, he added. I guess Iran echo chamber supports an Israeli military strike. In separate tweets, Dubowitz wrote that the deal would have sunset clauses eventually lifting restrictions on Iran's nuclear capability and argued that most of Iran's nuke expansion occurred after President Biden's election and his abandonment of pressure. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell on April 6 that he is not overly optimistic at the prospects of actually getting an agreement to conclusion. We're not there. And that was Richie Torres' J Street Spar over Iran Deal by Aaron Bandler, April 6, 2022. All right, we move on to this one. Palestinian Apartheid Week as new approach to facing anti-Israel activity on campus. We want to move from defense to offense. 
we want to be the organization that controls the narrative and controls the conversation, said Elon Sinelikov, president and founder of Students Supporting Israel. By Dmitry Shapiro, JNS, April 7, 2022. A pro-Israel student group is going on the offensive by tabling at multiple campuses across the United States highlighting systemic discrimination against Jews in Palestinian-controlled territories such as the West Bank and Gaza Strip for the first time ever in what the group is calling Palestinian Apartheid Week. Students supporting Israel has visited three college campuses throughout the country since March 21st, highlighting the realities college students rarely confront about the Palestinian-controlled territories. Issues like salaries paid to the families of Palestinian terrorists for killing Jews as part of a policy called pay for slay, the Palestinian Authority makes it illegal to sell property to Jews. Jews not being able to pray openly at holy sites in the Palestinian territory unless accompanied by security, erasing the existence of Jews from Palestinian textbooks and maps, as well as Hamas's charter calling for the killing of all Jews. Those policies, if someone wants to discuss true apartheid and discrimination and separation from people, this is it, said Elon Senelikov, president and founder of SSI. This is maybe not even true apartheid because nothing is the same as South Africa, but this is the closest that it can possibly be that shows signs of apartheid like that. The first week of the campaign coincided with Israel Apartheid Week. Sinelikov said that for 10 years, Jewish students at college campuses across North America have been put on the defensive every year during a week when Students for Justice in Palestine demonstrate at college campuses around the world to accuse Israel of war crimes and apartheid. One commonly used gimmick for Israel Apartheid Week is to put up a large wall modeled after the Israeli West Bank barrier decorated in anti-Israel messages. From the perspectives of Jewish and Zionist students who walk past that wall on campus with its messages and students spreading misinformation, it makes you feel horrible, makes you feel you have nothing to respond to, what he says. Organizations often respond to it by hosting pro-Israel speakers at events that are usually indoors or by passing up flyers which don't get nearly the same amount of attention. We want to move from defense to offense. We want to be the organization that controls the narrative and controls the conversation, says Sinelikov. Sinelikov and a handful of SSI national employees have so far traveled to three universities, starting on the campus of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, then the University of Minnesota, and spending Monday and Tuesday at the University of California, Berkeley, before concluding their tour this week at the University of Georgia. SSI joined with the campus's pro-Israel groups to host the events, which are continued by the students for the rest of the week after the national SSI group moves on. They set up for high traffic areas, such as in front of student unions or as at UC Berkeley, in a staircase by the entrance with multiple tables featuring different banners. Some of the banners include portraits of victims of Palestinian terrorists in Israel, such as Taylor Force, a 28-year-old American graduate student, Ari Fold, a 45-year-old father of four, and three teenage boys kidnapped in June 2014. The signs also include the amounts the PA pays their families each year. Other banners include a quote from Hamas's charter or anti-Semitic statement from Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas. 
Nearby, the group put up an improvised tent made to look like a bomb shelter they called a safe space and painted on it uh, the many threats faced by Israelis from Palestinian terrorist attacks. They also erected a plastic children's playhouse. On the house, there is a for sale sign stating that under Palestinian law, selling a house to a Jew is considered high treason, punishable by either a life sentence or death. Nowhere in the display are there any Israeli flags or pro-Israel messages or t-shirts from their organization. This is done so that, e that, event that the event focused only on Palestinian policies rather than always bringing the issue back to Israel. You know, let's discuss them for once, said Sinelikov. People discuss Israel non-stop. Let's discuss them now. Through, throughout the approximately five hours a day that tables are set up on campus, except for at the University of Minnesota, where the cold only allowed them to stay for a couple hours a day, Sinelikov said that he could see the effect of the campaign as the campaign he's making. The people who he could tell were really anti-Israel didn't know how to react. Some said it wasn't true. A few yelled obscenities or flipped them off. At every university, members of the school's SJP would stand across from them and take photos, but rarely say anything because they didn't know what to do. Even at Berkeley, nothing crazy happened, as some people would have predicted, he said. Most people think it's going to burn the campus down, this campaign, but the fact of the matter is, I think we're educating people really nicely in a really good way and we're controlling the narrative in the conversation, he said. After the group's first day at UC Berkeley, one of the country's most activist left-wing universities. Meanwhile, he could also see a change in Jewish and pro-Israel students who were coming up to them the whole day, happy and proud to see that for the first time there, first time there was a group that was proactive against Palestinian disinformation on campus. This, their feeling has changed, and now the Jewish students and the Zionist students in Berkeley and Urbana-Champaign feel empowered and like we're controlling the narrative and the students that are strongly anti-Israel. They're the ones that need to respond to us, Sinelikov said. The only thing that happened during the trip so far that Shuck Sinelikov took place at Urbana-Champaign. A young Palestinian student came up to them and argued for a while. At first, he, it's, he said, it appeared that they that they had even found common ground. Then her friends from SJP who were watching the event the entire day and taking pictures came up to her and said something in Arabic. The student then broke down and started crying and screaming at SSI and the Jewish students at the table saying, you stole our lands, we have nothing to lose and we will fight you until the day we can't. According to Sinelikov, the group plans to appear at other universities every semester even uh, though they have not yet decided which ones they will visit in the fall. The goal is to build Palestinian Apartheid Week to the point where individual campus SSI or similar pro-Israel groups can host their own Palestinian Apartheid Weeks in the future without the help of the national team. Quite literally erasing the Jewish existence, lives, community, and history from the map of the Middle East is what Apartheid looks like, SSI stated in a news release. If any college student can justify the Palestinian apartheid policies above, the problem was never Israel. The problem is those who cannot come to terms with the fact that the Jewish people rebuilt their homes and have their own independent state. Now is the time to discuss Palestinian apartheid. For too long, the despicable practices of the Palestinian government against Jews have gone unnoticed by the international community. For the first time ever, 
activists at SSI will be exposing these shameful practices. And that was Palestinian Apartheid Week as new approach to facing anti-Israel activity on campus by Dmitry Shapiro from JNS, April 7, 2022. All right, we move on to this next one. Shooting in downtown Tel Aviv leaves at least six in serious condition. Iran Campus, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, April 7, 2022. This is a developing story. At least one gunman shot people at, a, at different locations along a downtown Tel Aviv street on Thursday night, leaving what Israeli emergency responders said were at least six people injured in serious condition. Two were said to be in critical condition, according to the Magan David Adom, Israel's main first responder. Police said they were in pursuit of two gunmen and called on people to stay indoors and stay away from windows. Witnesses describe policemen running through the city streets, guns drawn. Media reports claim the attack occurred on a busy section of Dizengoff Street where bars and restaurants are concentrated. Terrorists, some identify with the Islamic State group, killed 11 people within Israel's 1965-1967 lines over the course of a week last month. The attacks come at the beginning of Ramadan, the Muslim holy holiday, when tensions are often heightened around prayer spaces in Jerusalem. Israeli police and Muslim worshippers clashed for weeks around the same time last year. That was shooting in downtown Tel Aviv leaves at least six in serious condition by Ron Campus Jewish Telegraphic Agency, April 7, 2022. Here's another one. Rabbi David Wolpe to step down as senior rabbi of Sinai Temple. For the 2023-24 year, Wolpe will serve as visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School in Boston, Massachusetts by Harvey Farr, April 7, 2022. Rabbi David Wolfe, senior rabbi of Sinai Temple, will step down and assume the position of emeritus rabbi starting June 30, 2023, Wolfe announced in a written statement. Wolfe has held the position since 1997. Rabbis Nicole Gusick and Erez Sherman, currently rabbis at the temple, will jointly assume the position of senior rabbis after a confirmation by the congregation's board. For the 23-24 year, Wolpe will serve as visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School in Boston, Massachusetts, according to the statement. He plans to call for his plans to call call for him to fly back at times to Los Angeles and then return to the city as his permanent home. It is possible to put into words it is impossible to put into words how much Sinai Temple means to me, Wolpe said in a statement. This shul has been a home, a community, a source of warmth, enlightenment, and growth for my entire adult life. I am grateful to teach and to each and every one of you who have given me the enormous zehud privilege of being your rabbi and giving and given me the even greater gift of being my friend. In a phone interview with the journal, Wolfie said that although his contract runs through the end of 2024, he told the Sinai board that with the next generation of leadership in place, there is no need for him to remain for another two years while his successors are all ready to take over. They are incredibly capable, and I believe it will be good for them and, I, and good for the synagogue for me to leave one year sooner, he said. As Rabbi Emeritus, I plan to remain involved with, the Sinai, with Sinai for years to come, but at this point, I really do feel like I've done what I could do in the pulpit, and I'd like to try some other challenges. It just feels like it's the time, right? It's the right time.
When Walpi came to Sinai, it had a membership of approximately a thousand families. Over the course of its leadership, synagogue membership almost doubled to its peak four or five years ago. Then COVID-19 struck, which cost the synagogue a few hundred members. Looking back at how the Los Angeles Jewish community has evolved and changed over his quarter century at Sinai, Wolpe said it has grown both larger and more diverse, and the same strains that are visible in America in general are visible in the Jewish community. But that's just something we have to learn to live with and deal with and overcome. There certainly is a lot more political polarization than there was ten, uh, ten years ago. As the rabbinic leader of one of the largest synagogues on the West Coast, Walby was generous with his advice for anyone considering entering the rabbinite. The best advice which I got from an older rabbi before I started is, if you're going to take a pulpit in a congregation, the single most important quality is to love Jews, and I do. And that's why it's been such a wonderful ride over these past 25 years. He continued, It's not about loving people in general. You have to love them, Jews, in all their individual particularities, gifts, and problems, everything. I don't know that everybody is built that way. But if you are, it's a really wonderful life. I don't regret a single minute of having been a rabbi at Sinai. It enriched me far beyond anything I gave to the synagogue. <clears throat> I feel very lucky and very blessed, even from the challenges over the years, I've learned and grown. I can't imagine that I could have done something with my life that would prove to be more rewarding. That was Rabbi David Wolfe to step down as Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple by Harvey Farr, April 7, 2022. Alright, continuing. Jewish groups condemn Tel Aviv terror attack. The attack occurred on Dinsigorf Street in the Heart of Tel Aviv's Nightlife by Aaron Bandler, April 7, 2022. Jewish groups have condemned the latest terror attack in Israel, which took place in Tel Aviv on the evening of April 7. Two Israelis are dead and eight others are wounded. The attack occurred on Dinsigorf Street in the Heart of Tel Aviv's Nightlife. There were reportedly two shooters. Some unconfirmed reports have stated that one of the shooters has been killed. The other is still believed to be at large. Authorities are encouraging those in Tel Aviv to stay home for the time being. Of those wounded, four are in serious condition. Witnesses to the shootings told Israeli media they saw fallen tables and broken glass as hordes of people were fleeing the area, per the Times of Israel Live blog. Palestinians are reportedly handing out sweets in downtown Ramallah in response to the terror attack, and Hamas praised the terror attack. Jewish groups issued statements denouncing the attack. We are horrified by the reports from the unfolding hashtag terrorist attack in the heart of Tel Aviv, including reports of significant injuries, the Anti-Defamation League tweeted. This spate of deadly hashtag hate targeting Israelis as going about their lives, about their daily lives, is intolerable. The American Jewish Committee uh, similarly tweeted, We are horrified by reports of a terrorist attack in central Tel Aviv. At least two people have been killed and multiple others injured. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Israel at this time. In a subsequent tweet, they urged Congress to condemn this vile hatred and express support for the Jewish state. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action Agenda at the Simon Wiesenthal Center, said in a statement, More innocents killed by Arab terrorists in Tel Aviv. Israel must do whatever, whatever and wherever it takes to root out terrorists. U.S. must back its ally. During Ramadan, 
we await response from Muslim faith leaders to butchery of Jews. World Jewish Congress President Ronald S. Lauder also said in a statement, terrorists struck at the heart of Israeli society for the third consecutive week, targeting people going about their evening on the busy, bustling streets of Tel Aviv. These violent acts, which only serve those who seek to make peace unattainable, are a series of wake-up calls for people around the globe. We call on Palestinians, Palestinian and Arab leaders to unequivocally condemn the reprehensible violence being directed at civilians. Diplomats also condemn the terror attack. Horrified to see another cowardly terror attack on innocent civilians. This time in Tel Aviv, United States Ambassador to Israel Tom Nidis tweeted, praying for peace and sending condolences to the victims and their families. This has to stop. Dmitry Zadchev, the European Union's ambassador to Israel, tweeted, deeply worried about reports about another terror attack against Israeli civilians, this time in the heart of Tel Aviv. Appalling. Our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and their families. The EU stands with Israel. That was Jewish Groups Condemn Tel Aviv Terror Attack by Aaron Bandler, April 7, 2022. Alright, we've got this one. Geico cancels event with Linda Sarzor issues apology by Aaron Bandler, April 7, 2022. Geico canceled their upcoming event with former Women's Rights March Incorporated leader Linda Sarzor and issued an apology following backlash to the scheduled event. Stop Anti-Semitism tweeted out a screenshot they had received of an email sent to GEICO employees on April 5 touting the company's diversity and inclusion event titled GEICO's Middle Eastern and North African Heritage Month Celebration featuring Linda Sarzor. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt had tweeted that he was shocked that GEICO would hold such an event with Sarzor, our person who peddles in anti-Semitic tropes while slandering and delegitimizing Israel. As evidence, he pointed to prior reporting from the journal on how Sauzar said in 2019 that Israel is built on the idea that Jews are supreme, supreme to everyone else. Geico proceeded to share a statement to Twitter on April 7 announcing that they had canceled the Sauzar event. We apologize to our employees, customers, and others for our initial plan to invite Linda Sauzar to speak at our internal event celebrating Middle East and North African Heritage Month. On Tuesday, we quickly canceled the event. Geico does not condone hatred of any kind, and we do not stand for or with anyone who does. We are not aligned with any form of exclusion, they added. We will continue to celebrate MENA Heritage Month in a way that aligns with our values. Jewish groups celebrated Geico's decision to reverse course. Glad at Geico heard our concerns and quickly reversed course, Greenblatt tweeted. Major companies should not partner with individuals who repeatedly espouse hashtag anti-Semitic tro tropes. At ADL welcomes this development. The American Jewish Committee tweeted, Arab American heritage is something all Americans can celebrate. Thank you at Geico for recognizing that you need an appropriate representative to do so. Democratic Majority for Israel also tweeted, Thank you at Geico for reversing your decision. Linda Sarzor has made a series of anti-Semitic statements and has trafficked in dangerous language. There should be no place for her hateful views. Stand with us Israel Executive Director Michael Dixon tweeted, Many corporations on, or brands would have doubled down, but you considered the feelings of your customers, reviewed the evidence, and made the right decision. Eli Kohanim 
former deputy special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, tweeted, Congratulations to at Geico. Wonderful to see corporations act like responsible citizens and reject hashtag anti-Semitism. Before Geico announced the cancellation, Koanim had told the journal that if Geico had moved forward with the event, it would have signaled to the world that Jew hatred doesn't matter and Jews don't count. Former New York Democratic Assemblyman Dub Hilkind, who heads Americans Against Anti-Semitism, praised Geico for doing the right thing. Let this be a lasting lesson. Linda Souser is a shameless racist anti-Semite who cannot be cleansed of her hatred without fully rep repenting, he tweeted. Until then, good riddance. And Stop Anti-Semitism Executive Director Lior Rez said in a statement to the journal, While we appreciate Geico's quick response, we must ask how this happened in the first place, and what can be done to prevent it from happening again. As covered in our 2021 Anti-Semitism in Corporate America report, Jews are often erased from diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. This incident is among many that, show, that shows it is imperative Jews have a seat at the equity table. And that was Geico Cancels Event with Linda Sauzor Issues Apology by Aaron Bandler, April 7, 2022. Alright, let's head in another direction here. Of course, Passover is, is this Friday night, starting this Friday night. So let's go to this one, Abyssal Torah Dayenu by Rabbi Nicole Gusick, April 7, 2022. As I visit preschool classrooms and watch model satyrs, the prayer Dayenu is belted out, chanted with fervor and enthusiasm. Over any other Pesach tune, Dayenu is clearly a childhood favorite. Perhaps it is because of the catchy melody. Perhaps because of the tradition of taking scallions, singing, and tapping the person that you find most annoying. Or perhaps because Dayenu is the essence of the Passover holiday. At first glance, one might think Dayeno is a declaration that the Jews have had enough. Slavery? It's enough. Under Pharaoh's evil gaze? It's enough. The horrors of life in Egypt? It is more than enough. But the verses convey a different message. God, you took us out of Egypt. That is more than enough. God, you gave us Shabbat. That alone is more than enough. God, you gave us the Torah. It is enough beyond imagination. God, you give and give and give. Dayeno is a song of thanks and Pesach is a holiday of gratitude. We are designed to compare. We can't help but wonder whether the person across the street is happier. We scroll Instagram and Facebook, curious about who is more successful and who is less. But Pesach begs us to stop. Dayeno. What we have in our lives at this very moment is more than enough. Thank God for the blessings that sit within your hands. They will certainly be room to reach further moments to ask, and time to inch higher. But for now, give thanks. Dayeno, count your blessings. For what I have, I am grateful. It is more than enough. Shabbat Shalom. That's Abyssal Torah Dayeno by Rabbi Nicole Gusick, April 7, 2022. Rabbi Nicole Gusick is a rabbi at Sinai Temple. She can be reached at our Facebook page at Rabbi Nicole Gusick or on Instagram at Rabbi Gusick. For more writings, visit Rabbi Gusick's blog section from Sinai Temple's website. Alright, let's try it again in as much as we can with the Table for Five section. Table for Five, Metzora, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, by Salvatore Litvak, April 7, 2022. One Verse, Five Voices, edited by Salvatore Litvak, the Accidental Talmudist. 
This shall be the law of the Metzora, the person afflicted with Zarat, on the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the Kohen, the priest. Lev 14.2 Rabbi Rebecca Schatz, Assistant Rabbi, Temple Beth Am. Some translation of this verse explain Fihuva el HaKohen as when it has been reported to the priest. However, the Hebrew is painfully clear regarding the isolation of a leper, and he will be brought to the priest, which implies that in isolation he has to wait for someone to bring him before the priest. The Da'at Zekinim shares that it is written as if he had come to the priest, since people were told to keep away from the leper. We could read this as sad and distant or empowering and a display of independence. The leper needs to see the priest to move forward to move from Sa'ara at to purity, but how they come together depends on support or allowances from community involvement. How hard we try, how do hard do we try to bring the afflicted person back among us? I'm reminded of Sugia on Brahat 5b that shares of a time when Rabbi Haya Bar Abba fell ill and Rabbi Yohanan asked for his hand to lift him up out of his illness and into health. Then in turn, when Rabbi Yohanan falls ill, Rabbi Hanina comes and asks for his hand to lift him up to health. So the rabbis of the Talmud ask, why could Rabbi Yohanan not just bring himself to health if he was able to heal others? And his response was, a prisoner cannot free himself free him, can, a prisoner cannot free themselves from prison. After years and many moments of isolation, we need to remember that like the leper, we need to we need help coming back into community. We might have the initial instinct to come back, but we need others to return to us uh, the reasons, the feelings, and the holiness of being together. Rabbi Chaim Singer Franks, multi-faith chaplain, Kaiser Permanente Medical Center, Panorama City. Our Torah embraces matters private and public, personal concerns, and those shared among many. In this era, it is a familiar tension which we navigate both intimately and consequentially across these same congested boundaries. Classically, Moshe's headaches as a leader involved the failings of the people, Israel, our derelictions of faith and our yearning to correct through wisdom and holy counsel. Therefore, it is curious that Metzorah's passage personifies the leader-priest as immunologist in, in management of diseases intractable and ungovernable. With the former, we journey back to God and community through deeds and sacrifice. Sa'arat, by contrast, is in a category of blight ostensibility beyond our control. It almost feels like an admission by the Holy One as if to say, I can't help you with this one, so here's the best way to deal with it. Accordingly, I am moved by the weight placed upon the priest in surveying and determining the ritual social cleanliness of the Israelites. Consider the social responsibility inherent to a thumbs-up or down declaring a person's fitness, closing doors to or opening them. Inevitably, the public health officers of today come to, uh, to remind with their realms, with the reams of data as reflections of the Torah's words enumerating and degree enumerating degree of spread, indicia of transmissibility, connoting danger of contagion. Let us then be mindful of the burdens heaped upon those with studied knowledge, endowed by God and people with the freight of momentous decisions, often unpopular and suffering scorn, regardless which judgments they reach. Marcus J. Fried, actor, author, and Jewish educator. MarcusJFried.com There was a man called Rachel 
uh, who, who sold drugs. The rabbis tell the story of a merchant, Midrash Vayakra Rabbah, 16.2, and how he went from town to town proclaiming who wants the drug of life. Rabbi Yanni was interested. The man produced a book of Psalms, quoting, Who is the man who desires life? Guard your tongue from evil. Psalms 34.14-15. The Ishbitzer Rebbe explained why the man was called Rachel, in which Hebrew is Rochelle, spelled quite differently from the female name Rachel, because it comes from the word Rechulut, meaning tail-bearing or gossip. If not guarding our tongues leads to death, then we know which path to take. The biblical mitzvah is one who has an illness that is the result of a slandering of slandering others. We live in an age where people are harshly punished for their words, whether it's a ten-year-old tweet, a badly timed joke in poor taste, or an offhand comment. We've seen people lose jobs, television series get cancelled, and lives ruined. Whilst this isn't quite zaras, the biblical illness, it does cause suras, the Yiddish word for worries, stress, woe, or grief. Have you had that moment when you've spoken negatively about someone, later see them, and feel a bit guilty? At that moment, the relationship has lost a tiny bit of its vitality. We all have access to this life force by choosing carefully how to use our words. This is available to everybody, and you don't even need to be named Rachel. Rabbinate Alyssa Thomas Newborn The first step to reintegration into society is for the Mitzorah to meet with the Kohen. The Kohen goes outside of the camp and affects the ritual process of purification and return. The Jamara famously teaches that the imprisoned cannot free himself from jail, that the afflicted cannot heal himself alone. Jews need community. We need one another in order to get through life's ups and downs. Sometimes we hold each other's hand as we cross the threshold into the next chapter. In the extreme contest of the Metzorah's spiritual re-entry, the Kohen embodies and models this ethic for us. And it is a role that holds tremendous responsibility. The Kohen wasn't merely the facilitator of ritual. He was the gatekeeper, the face that would greet and guide the person living on the outside. What does it mean for us to be the gatekeeper, to facilitate space for another, to meet in the midst of vulnerability and support recovery? Who has been in that role for us? Often everything that comes after such an encounter is influenced by the tenor and heart evident in that first most lim uh, liminal of moments. Whether in a passing exchange or in a profound circumstance, we, we each have this power and use it with empathy, vision, and wisdom is certainly in serving the divine as Mamleket Kohanim, a kingdom of priests. Nina Litvak, writer, Accidental Talmudist, taught York. The procedure for purifying a Metzora for his punishing skin disorder involving slaughtering a bird, then tying together cedar and hyssop with red thread and dipping the cedar hyssop stick and a live bird into the dead bird's blood. Cedar represents strength. Unlike most wood, it stays solid during extreme changes in weather and does not shrink, swell, or decay. Hyssop, H-Y-S-S-O-P, on the other hand, represents humility. It is a soft and small herb, easy to crush or overlook. Since the Mitzorah's sin, evil speech, was caused by his own arrogance, the humble Hyssop imparts an important lesson. What about the tall and proud Seder? The Mitzorah has already been brought down from the heights of arrogance and pride. What does he need to learn from the Seder wood? The Hasidic master, known as the Hidushe Harim, Poland, 19th century, explained that humility and conceit are both integral parts of being a virtuous person. 
In living a Torah life we must be strong and proud, but in matters pertaining to our own ego and comfort we must be soft and humble. To be a Jew is to constantly balance competing forces, hesed, loving-kindness, and gevurah, judgment, yetzertob, good inclination, and yetzerhara, evil inclination. We are adjured by God through Moses not to stray from the path of Torah, neither to the right or left. How can we achieve this delicate balance? To paraphrase Rebbe Nachman, the key to staying balanced is to first banish fear. And that was Table for Five Metzara, words that hurt, words that heal, by Salvatore Litvak, the accidental Talmudist, for uh, April 7, 2022. All right, with the time that we have left, let's read some ads from JewishJournal.com. And to reserve your market space ad, ad space, call 213-368-1661. And space reservation and ad materials deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursday. You can get social uh, with the Jewish Journal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We go to uh, this one, Cemetery Plots for Sale, Hillside Mortuary. Providing compassionate and professional mortuary services for, to families of all faiths. Hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships, enabling us to assist and coordinating and expediting arrangements, including a 72-hour cremation guarantee. Call 888-820-9950. Website is www.hillsidemortuary.org. Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, Los Angeles. I, uh, FD number 13588. And we go to this one, Mount Sinai Hollywood Hills, located in prime slot section of Gardens of Ramah, map, map, 18, map 19A, directly next to a shady tree, a companion lawn crypt. Mount Sinai price $34,500, our price $32,000. Endowment and transfer fee included. Call 818-426-3100. And this one. Mount Sinai Memorial Park, Los Angeles, single plot for sale in sold out the Gardens of Ramah, $20,000. Call 805-402-6865. And there's this one. Mount Sinai, Hollywood Hills, in sold out front section of Maimonides, two single plots side by side. Asking price $25,000 per slot or $45,000 for both. Transfer and endowment included. Call 818-422-3490. Email as adlaw1931 at gmail.com. We've got this one. Mount Sinai Memorial Park's Simi Valley. Cryptid Companion Estate in sold out location. Companion Estate 142. Sarah 11 spaces 1A and 2A with two spaces for interment. Interment. Asking price $30,000 OBO. Sinai price $40,250. Transfer and endowment fee included. Call 310 293-9280. Here's this one. Keep up with what's happening in town. Go to jewishjournal.com slash calendar. And this one, advertise your product or service here 
in the Jewish Journal Market Space. So again, that phone number to advertise in the Market Space is 213-368-1661. The Jewish Journal, Connect, Inspire, and Inform. And folks, this will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. And so until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom, happy Passover, and peace.